Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. For years, the global development community has struggled over the problem of dirty burning cook stoves. These are typically rudimentary stoves that burn wood or other biomass and in the process emit harmful smoke indoors. Nearly 3 billion people around the world cook their meals this way, leading to environmental damage and illness. Indoor air pollution attributed to dirty burning cook stoves kills millions of people each year. The solution to the problem of dirty burning cook stoves should be straightforward. Just replace cook stoves that emit harmful pollutants with cleaner, burning, improved cook stoves. And indeed, there is a great variety of efficient and clean cook stoves available today. But so far, these improved cook stoves are not being used at anywhere near a scale commensurate with the problem. The solution might exist, but consumers are often not using these better cook stoves. My guest today, Subrendu Patanayak, sought to learn why people who would benefit the most from improved cook stoves are not using them. He is the Oak Professor of Environmental and Energy Policy at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy. In 2019, he published the results of a five-year study with co-author Mark Juland of Communities in Rural India that offers some key insights into the barriers of increasing demand for cleaner burning cookstoves, and we discuss these findings at length in our conversation. Today's episode is the first installment of a series of episodes that will be published over the next few months that showcase the research and work of the Sustainable Energy Transitions Initiative, or SETI. SETI is an interdisciplinary global collaborative that aims to foster research on energy access and energy transitions in low- and middle-income countries. Since 2015, the network has expanded to include over 150 researchers, policymakers, and practitioners working in the field of energy from over 35 countries. Currently, SETI is housed at Duke University, where it is led by Professor Subrendu Patanayak and Mark Juland. SETI's research addresses the most pressing energy challenges faced by low- and middle-income countries, from clean cooking in Senegal to micro-hydropower in Nepal to coal divestment in Chile. To learn more about SETI, follow them on Twitter at SETI Energy. And now here is my conversation with Subrendu Patanayak. So SETI is a interdisciplinary collaborative. By that, uh, it's heavily economics, but it's also environmental sciences and sociology and public policy generally and public health. It's mostly researchers at universities, but there's a sprinkling of practitioners from across the world. This is about 35 countries, plus or minus five, depending on, you know, a German working in Rwanda or something like that, which gives you two countries, but really it's work in Rwanda. 
the focus is exclusively on energy transitions, okay? By that, I mean in the cooking space, going from biomass fuels to cleaner fuels or to electric cooking or something like that. In the lighting space, so you're thinking about uh, small-scale solar projects, household uh, home solar systems, but also heating and cooling, so electricity access. Uh, this is funded by uh, the Swedes, CEDA, via the Environment for Development Network, um, which is directed by Gunnar Chelin. And um, Professor Mark Julin, a colleague of mine here, is sort of the co-director of this initiative. And in practical terms, what we do is we, some subset of scholars from these 35 countries, say on average 50 to 75, gather once or twice every year, actually two or three times every year. We collaborate on a bunch of research uh, related to these energy transitions that I talked about. And um, we fund a whole bunch of small uh, research projects to get people started to work on these transitions. But really one of the things that distinguishes uh, what we are up to is trying to engage the policy crowd as much as possible. At the front end, what is it that they want answered? And then at the back end, actually throughout the process, but also definitely at the back end on here is what we found. And this is what it means. I, I should say, um, I've you know already before we we were doing this interview, I've I've spoken to a couple of your colleagues as part of the SETI interview series, and I'm just very excited uh, to bring some of this research to the kind of policy audience that tons to congregate around this show. Um, are, are there mm -hmm. any sort of examples you can cite of the kind of research in the field that SETI supports? So, so in a in a little, uh, I think we we'll be talking about this project that we did in the Indian Himalayas on clean cooking. I think the idea, for example, came from USAID, which is very development uh, focused and wants to see change on the ground, wanting to know why or why not people uh, use new technologies, especially these clean cook stoves, and. Uh, the results had been disappointing. And so that's an example of a, a major development agency looking to SETI to give some answers on this puzzle on, on their actual practice on the ground. Okay? And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that yes, in this episode. Yes. And, and so a lot of the work that SETI researchers do is actually response to calls for uh, calls for proposals from aid agencies, from development agencies, from the World Bank. So its policy is kind of grounded in that, that level itself. But also the, the selection of researchers working in this domain with us tends to be those who want to use their research in, in the service of society. So knowledge in the service of society as we think about that. One example is uh, clean energy has a lot to do with lack of air pollution. And air pollution is nasty in many ways. I think we understand that in terms of contemporaneous, like the health of you and me or our the elders or the kids, those are the most affected. But one thing that we picked up on when looking at Indonesian fires that happen every seven or 10 years, looking at the 1997 fires is, if you looked at kids who were in the womb, at who were not yet born, okay? 
and those who were living in areas that were high, who hadn't been born, but their mothers were living in areas that were highly exposed. When you track them over the years, and we tracked them for about 20 years, they ended up being considerably shorter than all those kids who were not born in areas that were exposed to those fires and the smoke that results from it. So there are penalties that are sort of play out across life. And there's no catch up. When, when you're an inch or two or three inches short, you don't make that up later in life. And what we found was that there's a reasonably cheap way to do this. And to, you don't need fire to clear, to set up oil palm plantations. You can do it mechanically, avoiding fires. And uh, the companies aren't doing it. And perhaps there needs to be a major change in incentives. And, and so energy, clean energy has a lot to do with air pollution. And the economics of clean energy has a lot to do with trying to set up the incentives and set up the institutions to achieve those things. Um, another example, going all the way across to the mountains of the Himalayas. Um, these are communities that are very hard to reach. There are people living there. The electricity uh, lines will never get up there. But what mountains have are fast-flowing streams. And this is sort of the renewable energy uh, person's paradise, right? You can trap that energy coming off those streams. It gets through a turbine, and all of a sudden, voila. I mean, you have what, 2,000 people, three, 400 homes that have lights for about four hours a day. And, you know, bread is getting baked and stuff is happening. So it's an engineering marvel that generates the, the stuff. But what we've been studying, uh, a group of researchers here at Duke, is um, that it's not just the engineering. It's really all about the community. Do you, can you get up and, collect the payments to keep that turbine functioning, to have an operator there. And, you know, it's a community group project. So those are the kinds of sort of spectrum of renewable energy to air pollution that SETI works on. Yeah. Um, so why is an entity like SETI a useful thing to, to have around? Okay. So let me go... John Lennon on you for a, just a second uh, here. So I, I had you more of a George guy. <laughs> so imagine no country, okay? I'm not going to sing the whole song, but uh, SETI is really a center without walls or a community without borders in that we are sharing ideas, methods, data. Well, we are engaging the policy community. We are building each other up. So the energy access problem is particularly problematic in parts of Africa, South Asia, Latin America. This is where the research scholarship is really isolated and hamstrung. You know, there's just a few people here and there who occasionally get to do some projects. And SETI is creating a forum for us to gather every now and then, right? Um, so... In this day and age, in the, in the globalized world that we live in, especially in the light of COVID, it's abundantly clear that um, you need a critical mass. You need a critical mass um, so that you don't have these one-off studies that someone has done in Malawi on how someone's, when there was a solar lamp, girls could study for two extra hours. Does the result from Malawi generalize to Zimbabwe? Does it even work for Uganda? So I think we need a critical mass of folks working on the same questions to have a general story 
And if you have that critical mass, you can then have a seat at the policy table and you can answer with some confidence the questions that the policymakers ask. Will this work for me? How do I need to tweak it? Do I have local researchers and local consultants that I can rely on, not these experts who have to fly in from Europe and America to help? Well, is there a Malawian who can sort of work on this? That's and that's that's the niche. That yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm not an academic, I'm not in academia, um, but a persistent complaint I have heard from policy people is how siloed in general academia can be. Um, and that siloing of expertise tends to negatively uh, impact their ability to influence policy. So it's really interesting to just kind of see how you are able to bring people of different expertise around this kind of same rubric of uh, energy transitions. That that is absolutely true. So the energy transitions, energy access problems, do not are not uh, contained within a single expertise or a discipline. So you need to understand incentives and prices and markets. So you need some economists at the table. You need to understand pollution and engineering because you know a cook stove that works in a certain setting doesn't work in another setting, and air pollution when there is Already dirty air outside is a different thing. I mean, again, just reflect on the COVID problem that we have. Uh, it's really not just pure epidemiology. <laughs> we need social distancing, which is very much a sociological phenomena. We need uh, policy support. We need economic policies because all the social distancing is creating all these effects. I'm sorry, sir, I'm sort of uh, pivoting into COVID, but that's probably at the forefront of the minds of everybody who's going to be listening to this. But it, it it reveals that real world problems are not unique to a certain discipline or a certain expertise. They need an interdisciplinary approach, which is what SETI brings to the energy transition space. Yeah. So, so that actually leads perfectly, I think, into a discussion of your research, which I wanted to talk about today, part of your research, into cookstoves. Specifically, why people do or do not adopt to use better, cleaner, improved cook stoves. Uh, but before mm -hmm. we get to, to that, can you just describe for people who are unfamiliar, why are dirty burning cook stoves such a problem? And what is that problem? So, yes, this is, uh, this is one of those silent killers that you didn't know about till COVID came along <laughs> in many ways. Um, I, I talked about outdoor air pollution, and I think people track outdoor air pollution. But really, um, indoor air pollution, which is an alien concept to most of us in the U.S. or Europe, is the second worst killer. It's the second most burdensome disease out there, according to the WHO. They, they do these global burden of disease studies every few years, and and indoor air pollution um, the pollution you get when you burn a piece of wood or you burn dung or you burn leaves, mostly for cooking, uh, is the second worst in that list. So it's a, it's, it's a major, major, major health concern. But on top of that, and that will be one part, and then this will be mostly the focus of public health folks, the, the biomass that's used in this cooking process is often not harvested sustainably. These are not nicely packed stacks of wood that is coming from some plantation. This is gathered hither and thither through backbreaking, painstaking processes that is degrading the forest. And it's creating this plume of smoke 
that sort of sits on communities and creates a local environmental problem. So there is a household level health issue. There's a local level environment and forest issue. But what has really kicked this problem up the chain to being one of the biggest around the world is it's also a global climate problem. That indoor air pollution uh, leaks out of the houses and it gets up in the sky and it hangs out uh, as, uh, as what is called black carbon, which is, say, it, it's not a greenhouse gas, but it's a greenhouse pollutant, a GHP. That's about 25% of the global climate change problem in some ways. So the actions of every cook around the world and half the world cooks using dirty fuels of some kind is affecting global climate. So that affects you and me, Mark, but also local forests and local environments. So more than that household, but ultimately it affects that household, typically the mother and the kids who are hanging around and their health. So very, very seriously. So, I mean, we've known what you just said for, for a while. We've known that dirty burning clerk stoves have been a problem. And we've also known that a, you know, a straightforward solution would be to replace those dirty burning cook stoves with cleaner cook stove or, you know, so-called improved cook stoves. But there's been, it seems, you know, as long as I have studied this issue and, and been around this issue and reported on it, um, this kind of persistent problem of getting people to make that switch, you know, despite the fact that the solution is out there, people have been slow to adopt and, and use improved clean cook stoves. And what I found so fascinating about your research is that it's you know, one of the few studies I've read that seeks to answer that question. Why is it that people have been slow to adopt and use cleaner cook stove technology. But before we get into sort of the answer to that question, could you just explain how did you go about collecting your data? How did you go about conducting your study? Yeah, so I think, Mark, you are completely on, on target there that uh, anyone who's done any Peace Corps or anything around the world knows that uh, clean cook stoves have existed for as long as development policy has been there. But unfortunately, the first wave of efforts to promote a change in the cooking sector were all very top-down. They were engineering solutions without a full appreciation of society, culture, norms, uh, constraints, okay? And, um, and, and I've had quite a bit of experience with trying to understand why people do or don't use toilets, why they do or don't wash hands. And as, as you may know, in South Asia, there is a big problem with um, uh, defecation in the open, okay? So this is lack of use of toilets, and this creates all kinds of diarrheal disease. And so I cut my teeth in trying to understand why, uh, what is it that, wh why do people hesitate to use toilets? And, and what I learned was sort of a go-slow learning approach. And what we did in this case was what I would describe as a phased approach to learning. So the first phase was, what is going on? Why is it that for so long we've known the solution and we've come up with uh, really bad projects and programs on the ground that don't seem to stick, that pe people don't take up these stoves? So we did, you know, academics being academics, we read and read and did desk reviews and simulation analyses. And a lot of them seem to suggest that it really depends on people's fascination, interest, and uptake of the technology. This was just desk work. Of course, we are very field-based people, so we went and did tons and tons of focus groups all over India. India is very diverse. 
that's lots and lots of sugary cups of tea. My teeth are almost falling off <laughs> from that dose of tea. And, and, and we learned that people are quite different in their tastes for the technology, but also in the constraints that they face. So this diagnosis stage led to what we would call the second design stage, where we ran a bunch of pilots in three different states, one on the coast, one in the heart of the, in the Uttar Pradesh, in the plains, and one in the mountains, where we sought out differentially loved local uh, non-governmental organizations, because we thought that the implementation organization had a big role in how things would work. And we paid a lot of attention to what we would call the supply chain. What kind of marketing strategies, what kind of rebates, what kind of information, what kind of product delivery would work? And the pilots gave us very diverse pictures. In some places, this was not working. And in some places, they were selling like hotcakes. Now, those are all very anecdotal, and we could have written a blog and be done with it. But we want to bring compelling science so that the aid agencies and the doers and the practitioners can reliably sort of change the tide of what's happening in this sector. And so we did what is called a randomized controlled trial, which means that out, out of 100 hamlets in, in the Himalayas, about 30 of them didn't get anything. And a 70, so that's seven-tenths of the sample, got, uh, got a treatment. And the treatment was essentially home delivery, just like your pizza shows up and then you're more likely to eat it rather than go pick it up. Full-blown information on everything I just said, but of course in, in a form and format that could be understand, demonstration projects, but also rebates to relax sort of the credit constraint. They may not have money right now. Can they give it paid in installments? And being economists, we wanted to see how price-sensitive people were. So the 70 hamlets were divided into three groups of those who got uh, practically, they had to pay the full price, so no rebate. Someone who had to pay about you know, uh, 30% less, so a massive rebate, and, and a medium group. That's exactly what we did. And th these are, again, to... So just, Mark, just to be clear, what, what we learned from all our reviews is people had tried to change too many small things. And What, what do you mean by that? What, what do you mean by that? People try yeah, to change so too many small things? So sometimes people go and say, hey, you know, they, they're not doing it because they don't get it. So I need to give them information. And they'll give them information and they're disappointed when only 2% of the sample responds to the information. And others say, well, it's really about prices. And so they give things away for free and then they're disappointed that the free stuff isn't used as much. And what we discovered is actually all of it. Rural households face multiple constraints. We need a full court press. We need to subsidize the living daylights out of this. We need to give a lot of compelling information. We need to do some brainwashing. This is how people sell stuff in rural areas. So actually trust the sales agent. Do follow what they do to market this stuff. And most, most, most importantly, in rural areas, the supply chain is critical, right? Getting the product close to where the household can access it is massive. And if it's it, even five kilometers away, um, you're not, and they're living in the mountains, walking five kilometers, <laughs> hauling something is tough. So when you have, as you call it, like that full court press, I mean, are the results dramatic? Do you see just a huge uptake in the use of improved cook stoves over the traditional sort of dirty burning ones? Yes. So we have a basic result, 
which is uh, might not be shocking to you given how passionately I'm saying that what we tried was important. But let let me the basic result is that there was a massive massive response. Fifty percent of the households who were approached took this up. Okay. Oh, you might wonder why not 100%. Just try selling stuff in life. You know, not everybody wants it. But most importantly, till our study came out, there had been a string of disappointing results. And there were papers being written. They were called Up in Smoke. Uh, there was a Harvard-MIT study that people are not interested in these kinds of products. We should give up on them. There was generally a, a negative, pessimistic take on this sector. That, I, I remember that phase. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so we came out all guns firing and showing that that is actually incorrect. Maybe the market analysis hadn't been done. Maybe the problems that needed to be solved hadn't been solved. And if you solve all those problems one at a time, people seem to be genuinely interested. So 50% uptake on average, okay? And then there are some subgroup results. 75% uptake in the people who were subsidized just one third of the product, right? So even a, a modest subsidy knocked it up from 50% to 70%. Electric stoves selling at twice the rate as the uh, improved cook stoves, the biomass stoves. The, you know, the, so giving people a choice between the technology rather than saying, take this or leave it, mm -hmm. giving them a choice seemed to change something because they all gravitated towards the electric stoves. And, and the, the kicker is even people who didn't get subsidy, the fact that the stove, either kind, was available in the community just at the doorsteps, already increased uh, uptake by 33%, right? So just relaxing the supply constraint, home delivery and information and installment finance was going to improve uptake without having to offer subsidies. This is a whole range of results. What this means is that there are different people and they like different stuff. Yeah. But I, it's actually possible well, to solve these. I mean, because there are different people and they like different stuff, it seems that almost complicates the sort of policy solutions to this. I mean, one, for example, straightforward policy implication I, I sort of get from your research is that, you know, subsidies go a long way. So maybe governments, local or national governments ought to, you know, introduce better subsidy programs for these things. Um, but I guess what other policy implications do you see from your research? So, so, so a couple, okay. And I, I do, as a researcher, I do want to hook back to the, the methodological lesson, especially for the uh, researchers who are trying to work with policymakers. But let me just start with the policy story. Yes, of course, it's complicated, right? So, if it was easy, we would have solved this a long time ago. And this is what I uh, teach in class, and this is what I explain with to everybody in the SETI community and those who work with us. Only the hard problems are left. And we stop being silly to think that there is a simple solution. So, so one of the first lessons is that there is no one stove that rules them all. You know, sorry to borrow uh, from Tolkien there, but there are different kinds of people out there, and they want different kinds of stoves. In our study, we offered them three different kinds, and already there was sorting between those three. So the the you know, uh, Colorado, where you live, Mark, is, is a Colorado state, is, is a producer or, you know, a lot of the good stoves are manufactured. But that which is designed in Colorado state was, won't necessarily resonate in some part of Ethiopia, different from what will happen in Vietnam, different from what will happen in the Himalayas, different from what will happen in Guatemala. These, how can the designer there know it all? So you need sort of 
some level of, uh, you certainly don't need that one store that's tier four that is going to work for everyone. You're going to need different kinds of tier four stores that work for different people, number one. Number two, um, there's, there's all kinds of businesses that manage to work and sell stuff in rural areas, right? And, and they, they absolutely do this kind of market segmentation. They, they don't have the same marketing strategy for everyone. They calibrate their message. You know, when it's a young mother with a kid, then they say something different or they offer a slightly different product. When it's an older person taking care of a spouse or a partner, then they sell a different thing. So to think that there's one marketing message and that should work, I think that's been one of the mistakes, to think that uh, there is a, a single strategy that works, okay? And, and this, again, ties back to what SETI is up to because who is going to figure out these different marketing messages? What kind of researcher is able to sort that out? I think if you're going to rely on just academics in the U.S. or in the European Union to do that, we're going to run short of suppliers of the researchers who can solve these problems. We need actually researchers in the places that have the cooking problem. We need researchers in Malawi solving the problems in Malawi. We need researchers in Ghana solving the problems in Ghana. And vice versa for Vietnam, Guatemala, you can look at all these energy access hotspots, India, Nepal. I, th I think, and that's what SETI is trying to do. It's trying to decentralize that research capacity so that the research is local and they can speak to their own policymakers and work closely with them. Uh, so that, that, sorry. No, no, go, go, go ahead, go ahead. And, and that really hooks me back to what, what um, one of the messages of this paper and the person who handled it, you know, a National Academy of Science um, member at the PNAS, um, National Academy of Science, sorry, that's the journal in which this paper was published. They, they said that we really like your paper because you are questioning sort of the, the rise of these somewhat uh, silly randomized controlled trials that others are trying, where there is like an aim, fire, shoot. I've got a question, I'm going to run in there and do a trial and get an answer. You took this very go-slow approach. First, you spent a couple of years just trying to diagnose the problem, okay? And then you spent a couple of years just designing different solutions and piloting them and testing them out. And only then did you do your trial. And I'm calling for that kind of go-slow approach, in, um, which is unique to every place and setting. And I think only when there are researchers from that place can we help get there. And said he's going to try to do that. Yeah, well, I am looking forward to the other interviews I have as part of this series. Uh, thank you so much, Subrandu. This is fascinating. Of course. Yeah, Thank for, you, Mark, for hosting us. Yeah. From the Beatles to Tolkien, I, I, I think we covered a lot of ground here. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Superendu. That was absolutely fascinating. You know, I've been following this clean cook stoves issue for a very long time, so I was just really interested to read Superendu's paper on the demand side challenges. Uh, and I am very excited for the other uh, episodes that will come as part of this content partnership with the Sustainable Energy Transitions Initiative. I've actually already recorded a couple of these, and I'm really excited to share them with you guys. All right, we'll see you next week. Bye.